0: this program is made possible by members and donors, so huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about just a few aspects of modern life for Native peoples that we can see as stemming from the racism and colonialism that has been endemic in post-contact America. This episode is the fourth in an ongoing series focusing on Native peoples in North America. If you want to go back and start from the beginning, previously episodes in the series start with number 1216 on Christopher Columbus, followed by number 1230 on Thanksgiving, and number 1252 on Westward Expansion. Clips today come from Moyers & Company, Code Switch, Making Contact, Let's Talk Native, Counterspin, and Ideas from the CBC.
1: Today, what we see is tribes moving into the 21st century and facing real 21st century problems of globalization, of multinational, uh, national resource development, uh, of jobs, of the need. You know, tribes have elected leadership. They're elected to do a lot of things. They're elected to protect sacred lands, but they're also elected to provide jobs, improve quality of life. And so, these are the types of situations tribes are confronting on a daily basis. And you find lots of different attitudes, lots of different conflicts, lots of different controversy within tribes. This piece sacred is that piece sacred? How sacred is it to which particular part of the tribe, for example? So you're going to find a lot of diversity, and tribal governments have to manage that diversity and have
2: to do what's best for the tribe. So is the Rio Tinto deal that just has... Gone through the, familiar to you. I mean, is it a oh, yeah. pattern? Uh, that land was taken away uh, from the
1: tribe, uh, and many people in the tribe will tell you to this day that it was illegally taken away. Uh, but once Congress signs a treaty or issues an Indian Claims Commission decision and pays off on it, that's it. Your rights are are exhausted. And I've looked at a lot of treaties, and I keep seeing the same guy sign that treaty again and again. Yeah. And I ask my students, what that guy's name is? X. Yeah, it's, <laughs> right. you know, and, and, and that so, says? Yeah. And what it says is that the tribes didn't, they had a document handed over to them. They didn't know what they were signing. They were lied to. Oftentimes it was fraud induced. Uh, sometimes treaties would be ratified even though the required signatures weren't there. And so for Indian tribes, uh, the fact that there may be a treaty, the fact that they may have been, quote, compensated for these lands in a process that didn't even award them interest from the date of the taking, uh, doesn't mean the case is over. Uh, U.S. law and international human rights law have radically diverged in the past 20 years in terms of the recognition of indigenous people's rights. Uh, International human rights law now uh, looks at not whether or not the tribes have formal ownership or legal title as in a Western legal uh, conception might have it, uh, but rather they look at the tribe's historical connection to that land. So U.S. courts couldn't address it. No, they wouldn't be able to address it. In fact, the way that legislation is written, the the, uh, environmental review process is going to be concluded before the land is transferred. And then, of course, once it's transferred,
2: there's a mandatory transfer date. Those processes really have little meaning anymore. Once the land is transferred, environmental laws don't... It's because private property and federal environmental laws don't apply.
1: Yeah, you really hit on it. It's this idea of private property. You know, when... Europeans came to the New World. The first thing they said is, well, Indians don't appreciate property. They, they're, they're savage, they're backwards, they're uncivilized. And so we really don't have to pay them for it. Or if we give them a treaty, we really don't have to give them what the land is, is truly worth. Uh, nothing could be farther from the truth. Tribes have very clear conceptions of their traditional boundaries. They maintain uh, their rights and their, their claim sovereignty over their lands according to their own oral traditions and tribal elders. And so you, you can go out there in the reservation, uh, and there might be a reservation boundary established by the United States, Uh, but then there's traditional land boundaries. The Navajo, for example, regard their traditional lands as within the four sacred peaks. One of those is the San Francisco peaks, uh, where uh, the ski resort, one of the holiest sacred mountains in in, uh, Navajo cosmology. Uh, And here you've got the city of Flagstaff selling reclaimed water. Um, to make sewage water water. I mean it's considered a horrible desecration I mean you know put it into another cultural context uh, and you wouldn't be able to think of that being with any other racial group but for Indians because you know we think they really don't care
2: about land or they have primitive ideas or they don't have ownership uh, we completely disrespect that this has been your passion almost your obsession to to help us understand how American law came to embody this whole notion of savagery. Your book, Savage Anxieties, just opened my eyes to this long 250-year history that you talk about as institutionalizing savagery as a concept to discriminate against leaders. And what I tried to show in that book is
1: that this idea of this fundamental conflict between savagery and civilization goes back to the very beginnings of Western history. I go back to the Greeks. I go back to the Romans. You can read Homer. And of course, Homer has his great heroes involved in this myth, this wonderful mythic contest with savage tribal peoples, half-human monsters on distant parts of the world. When you think about the Roman Empire, what was it made of? It was made of conquest of the tribes of Central Europe, the Germans, the Picts, uh, the Celts. Uh, you have Tribal wars of Charlemagne in the Middle Ages uh, fought on behalf of Christianity. Western civilization has been at war with tribalism for 3,000 years. And that war was brought to the New World by Columbus, by the Spanish conquistadors, by the English colonists. And what you find is at a very early point in American law, Chief Justice John Marshall is asked to decide the status of Indian tribes. And what he does is, I like to tell my students, he goes to the S-Card. He calls them savages who lack the same rights as the white people who came over here, the Europeans, and colonized their land. Under this, what many Americans might regard as an obscure legal doctrine called the Doctrine of Discovery, but it is still the most important doctrine in American constitutional law. The Doctrine of Discovery, which... Hold. Which holds that when Columbus and John Cabot and the other European explorers came to the New World and sailed along the shores and claimed it for their crowns, so long as those lands were occupied by heathen, infidel, and savage peoples, their property rights did not have to be recognized. Marshall says in this famous 1823 case of Johnson v. McIntosh, he says, when the great nations of Europe discovered this continent, they were eager to appropriate to themselves so much of it as they could respectively acquire. But the character and religion of its inhabitants Made them a people over whom the superior genius of Europe might claim an ascendancy. In other words, what he's saying there is, when we discovered America, it was occupied by a bunch of backward, uncivilized brutes, and we were going to make better use of the land than them, so we could take it from
2: them. You say this is one of the most important Indian rights cases ever handed down by oh, the Supreme Court. absolutely, because because it defines the property rights of indigenous
1: peoples in this country, and what it says is that upon discovery. The European nation or the nation that succeeds to its interest, the U.S. from Great Britain, holds superior title and sovereignty to the land belonging to the Indians. They have a mere right of occupancy. And what Marshall says is that right of occupancy can be taken away by purchase, conquest, or any other means. And so the reason that this case is so important is it really sets the foundation for this radical approach to uh, understanding the basic human rights of Indian people to hold and control the lands that they occupy. It gives the U.S. government the right to relocate. It stands at the bottom of the ethnic cleansing campaigns, for example, in the removal era. Uh, and it's continued to be cited today by the Supreme Court. Even Justice Ginsburg, the most liberal member of the court, in footnote one of an opinion she wrote several years ago involving the Oneida Nation, cites the doctrine of
2: discovery. The court never questions it. And the doctrine of discovery, that fact that the white Europeans, quote, discovered the new world right. carries with it an inherent right to dominate the people who live there. Oh, absolutely. It's exactly why Congress can pass legislation as it did
1: with the Rio Tinto landmine deal, because Congress took the land from the tribes, uh, ignores their sacred connections to it, their cultural connections, and does whatever it wants with it. It's why Congress can order tribes removed in the 1950s. Congress terminated tribal status for more than a 100 tribes, basically said you're not a tribe anymore, and we're not going to pay attention to the treaties. Uh, the Supreme Court has held that when Congress breaches a treaty with an Indian tribe, it's not judicially reviewable. It's called a political question. And if tribes have a problem with that, go back to Congress, the very people who broke your treaty.
2: When I talked to the writer, Tenehase Coates, recently here, he said that African Americans they are bound, tethered by the... Reality, the mythology, and the legacy of slavery. What is, what are you saying is the equivalent of that phenomenon for Indians? It's the history of dispossession. You know, very much like African Americans,
1: um, the history of America is taking away resources, uh, whether it's labor or whether it's land from one racial group to give them to the dominant racial group. So in that sense, um, there is, A very similar experience, but the dispossession experience that, that, you know, African Americans were dispossessed of the land by being brought over here in slave ships, uh, whereas Indians were on the land and fought literally wars uh, against Europeans for control of that land. And that history of dispossession, um, you know, if you look at the treaties, it's very interesting. Everyone thinks that Indians were ripped off in their treaties. Uh, if you look at the first round of treaties from about 1800 to the Civil War, uh, tribes secured over 150 million acres, and maybe 144 million acres in those treaties. That's a large amount of real estate in the 1880s, after tribes were finally defeated in the Indian Wars and put onto reservations, Congress passed the 1887 General Allotment Act. And that act ended up dispossessing tribes of 90 million acres. Most of it turned over to white homesteaders, most of those acres being prime, the best lands on the reservation. And so that history of dispossession was also accompanied by a history of forced assimilation, whether it was in residential schools, uh, whether it was in dismantling traditional tribal governance structures. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's what's been taken away way. And the justifications for that is that you're not as good as us. Our systems are better. Our modes of education, our ways of owning land, our ways of working have been continually cited
2: to Indians as the reason for these government policies. So has there been any improvement? in the way Native Americans are treated in the John Roberts Court more recently. No, in fact, Native American Rights Fund has a project called the Supreme Court
1: Project, and, and quite frankly, it's focused on trying to keep cases out of the Supreme Court. This Supreme Court... Justice Roberts is actually hard to believe, but it's probably worse uh, than the Rehnquist Court if you look at the few decisions that it's issued. And Justice Rehnquist as, uh, before he became Chief Justice had written several highly uh, negative, stereotype-charged opinions about Indians. One was a horrible case called Oliphant the Suquamish Indian Tribe, which denied tribes the right to criminally prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes on their reservations. Uh, that decision has had horrible consequences for law enforcement on Indian reservations. But in that opinion, Justice Rehnquist, uh, cites language from the 1830s to explain why whites didn't trust tribes to exercise criminal jurisdiction. They were savages.
3: Siberian Yupik ways of subsistence hunting and old songs and stories have been passed down in her family for a long time. But, from the moment Sam was born, Renee worried that other things in her family's history might hurt her child when Renee's mother was a little girl, she was one of tens of thousands of native kids taken by the federal government and sent to boarding school hundreds of miles away.
4: They told her how to dress, how to speak, how to hold herself, she said there was a lot of sexual abuse, um a lot of physical abuse, you know if you got up late or you didn't clean how you were supposed to clean, you were beaten.
3: What was your mother's conception of her own
4: identity? Um, I don't know. It's, it was muddled.
3: Muddled because, on one hand, her mother did really well academically.
4: She's really smart. She's very curious, learned things quickly.
3: But she was also taught to hate a lot of who she was. The language she grew up speaking, the way her family and Gamble dressed, and what they ate, walrus, seal, whale, and fish. It was all enormously damaging.
4: She would cry to be home, but then when she was home, she was miserable, like when she'd go back to the village.
3: This is the root of what sociologists call intergenerational trauma. A family goes through something cataclysmic, in this case, a war on their culture. The family survives, but the effects of the trauma are passed down to the next generation. Renee's mother could be harsh to her daughter. She drank a lot. In many ways, it was a difficult childhood.
4: My mother was very brutal. She didn't know how to give praise, didn't know how to say good job or your efforts going. You know, like a teacher would, right? And I think it came from being in boarding schools. So I don't think she ever really ever had love. Like she loved, but it it was it was shown like with taking care of you, right? Giving you good food and. Making sure you had clothes and they're clean, and but it wasn't the verbal love. Mm-hmm. So for um, so for me, it was. I don't have that in my. I knew I just didn't want Sam to have that.
3: Renee and Jeremy vowed to give their son verbal love and protect him from that pain, and to give him what had been stolen from Renee's mother, a clear cultural identity. That's key. People who study intergenerational trauma have found that grounding young people in their culture is the best way to protect them.
5: One time, when I was living in Oklahoma, I got an opportunity to go to this gathering of, um, uh, for one of the native ministry programs, and one person came to visit, and he was a spiritual leader, and he said, he said, the most important thing that we have to worry about is uh, violence against women and children. He said, because as long as we are destroying ourselves from within, we don't even have to worry about the enemies from outside. So that that was pivotal to me but then the next thing that happened was I went back home and I was telling a friend who was herself a sexual assault survivor and I told her about what he said and she said do you mean other indians have been raped too and I said well well yes and she said why aren't we ever talking about it so then I was kind of struck by the silence that's in our communities about the issue um but then the next thing that was kind of pivotal to me is I went um when I was working in Chicago Um, uh, a young woman was gang-raped by prominent members of the community, and kind of the response of the community when she threatened to go to the police was to kind of basically put her on trial and say, how dare you air our dirty laundry to other people? And on the other hand, uh, when she went to get services, there was nothing that was really helpful for her either because the response of the mainstream movement was, well, why don't you just leave your community? So in all these cases, what I was seeing was a major issue of sexual violence and yet there was no vocabulary for how to understand what was happening to native women and what I can begin to conclude was that there was a problem with our analysis that we were seeing violence against women as a separate thing from colonization we need to worry about colonization first and then later we will worry about violence against women or conversely in the white feminist movement we'll just worry about violence and all these other issues will take care of themselves and we were not seeing that these two processes were actually part of the same thing. And that is precisely through sexual violence that American Indian genocide is successful. And that we can't decolonize without making uh, addressing sexual violence central to our organizing work. So the way that I kind of see sexual violence as part of the logic of genocide is that uh, I borrow from Ann Stoller who says that racism is a process by which certain peoples become marked as inherently dirty as inherently pure, from which the larger colonial body is always trying to clean itself. And if we look at the history of native uh, genocide, we see again and again this rhetoric of native bodies being equated with pollution or dirt. To so just to give one example, this was an ivory soap ad um, from 1885, and there's kind of a cartoonish figure of an Indian man and woman, and this is the slogan that goes with the cartoon. We were once factious, fierce, and wild In peaceful arts, unreconciled Our blankets smeared with grease and stains From buffalo meat and settler's veins Through summer's dust and heat content From moon to moon unwashed we went But ivory soap came like a ray Of light across our darkened way And now we're civil, kind, and good And keep the laws as people should we wear our linen, lawn and lace, as well as folks with paler face. And now I take, wherever we go, this cake of ivory soap to show what civilized my squaw and me and made us clean and fair to see." So you can see the joke of this ad is that because Indian bodies can't be white, they can never be clean. And under a patriarchal worldview, only a body that is seen as pure can be violated. The violation or rape of bodies that are seen as impure don't count, they are seen as inherently rapable. So to give an example, when sex workers are raped, nobody cares because they, they are seen as inherently rapable, inherently violable. And that is what has happened through the logic of genocide. Native peoples have become seen as inherently rapable, inherently violable, and by extension, our lands are inherently invadable. So when we look at the history of massacres, it's not just that Indian people were killed off, but this is always accompanied by uh, routine uh, mutilations, sexual violence, etc. And I'll just give one example to, to illustrate this from the Sand Creek Massacre. I heard one man say he had cut a woman's private parts out and had them for exhibition on a stick. I heard another man say he had cut the fingers off of an Indian to get the rings off of his hand. I also heard of numerous instances in which men had cut out the private parts of females, stretched them over their saddle bows, and some of them over their hats. So what's happening then in this process is that colonizers are not just trying to kill Indian people, but to kill our sense of even being a people. In addition to this, one of the major complaints that colonizers made when they first came to this lands is they said, how are we going to ever colonize them when they themselves are not structured on hierarchy. That is, they're not patriarchal, they don't necessarily have these hierarchical societies in which the leaders get to lead forever in perpetuity. So if they're not accepting that kind of leadership within their communities, why are they going to accept it from us? So they said that we will never be able to colonize them, and they said this explicitly, until uh, Native men start, start treating Native women the way white men treat white women. And so, therefore, if you want to colonize a people, it's not going to work until colonization seems natural. Because if you know there's another way to live, you're going to do that. You're not going to accept domination from other people. So the way to make domination seem natural is to instill it through patriarchy. That is, just as men are naturally supposed to rule over women by virtue of biology, so it is the case that socially some people are naturally born to rule over other peoples. So sexual violence was a process by which hierarchy becomes literally inscribed on the bodies of native peoples. I had been involved in the anti-violence movement and we were kind of getting annoyed with uh, kind of the approach to multiculturalism that was being adopted in these movements, which was basically take the model that has been developed with white women in mind and then put a medicine wheel on it and it becomes an Indian model. And we started to say, is there a different way to do this work? Because it seemed like all the, the monies we put into this was not really ending violence. We're not seeing a deep decline in the uh, race of violence against women. And in particular, uh, what we started to say is that we need to develop a different approach that's beyond kind of a politics of inclusion, which is just include you in this and then we will be all diverse and feel happy with ourselves and instead developing approach which we call recentering which is what if we centered women of color in the analysis how would we look at this issue differently and when we did that we saw that women of color and native women in particular are not just dealing with violence in our communities we're also equally dealing with state violence and as I've just demonstrated the state is primarily responsible for the sexual violence in our communities so it doesn't really make sense to think the state's going to be the solution to the problems that it has created. Uh, it becomes clear that if we want to address what's going on in native communities, we need an approach that addresses state violence at the same time that we're addressing violence within our communities. So then the question is, well, what 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 is to be done? Well, therefore, we started to look at other models, and this is how Incite Women of Color Against uh, Violence uh, formed. And we looked to other models in terms of the restorative justice framework. If you're not familiar with that, that's a movement that's part of the anti-prison movement that says, well, crime is not just between a victim and a perpetrator. Crime is about a breakdown in the whole community, so you need a community-based response. And if somebody is not following the norms of society, does it make sense to take them even more out of society, put them in prison where they 're going to be even less likely to, to fit into that community when they come back, or does it make sense to have the community develop a response that that makes that person behave in an appropriate way? So this looks all very well and good, but the problem is is that these models all seem to break down when it comes to domestic and sexual violence, and the reason is is that they 're all based on the notion that we have a community that's intact, that's not sexist, homophobic, or otherwise problematic, and that they will actually side with the person who's been victimized by violence. But as we all know, when it comes to issues of sexual and domestic violence, communities often don't side with the woman or the person who's been victimized by violence. They often uh, side with the perpetrator, so they're not going to hold them accountable. One thing we strive to do is try to develop strategies that directly address interpersonal and state violence at the same time. And there's been many of these, but I'll just briefly mention one, which is a boarding school healing project. If you're, if you're not familiar with the history of boarding schools, this was the policy of the U.S. government, which was to uh, save the man by killing the Indians. So basically the idea was to abduct Native children from an early age, take them from their homes, uh, force them to be Christians, force them to speak English, and there was just rampant sexual, physical, and emotional violence. And this is really where we see the large-scale introduction of violence in our communities where... Uh, Native children were not parented, so then they couldn't pass that on to their own children. And, in fact, I've been in many workshops where we're supposed to trace kind of where does dysfunctionality start in your family, and almost invariably it's a boarding school. In any case, and you might have been heard in Canada where there's been all these lawsuits against residential schools, which was similar to the boarding schools here, and all the rampant sexual violence. There turned out to be pedophile rings involving uh, priests and uh, cl- uh, police officers and priests and clergy members. Uh, there was unmarked graves in some schools where um, children had been buried because they had been born to, uh, girls had been raped by the priests and some people were calculating as many as 50,000 children were killed in this uh, during this period. But there hasn't been the simil- same similar outcry in the US and many of the documentation programs tend to present a more sanitized view of boarding schools. So we started a documentation program to document these abuses and but the idea about this was to not so much pursue individual lawsuits, but to build up a movement for collective remedy against Native peoples uh, who um to address the continuing effects of human rights violations perpetrated by state policy. So this then enabled us to make kind of two interventions. One We're able to say, well, why do we think, again, the state's going to be the solution to ending sexual violence in our communities when the state is responsible for bringing it into our communities? And at the same time, it enabled us to talk a little more freely about issues of sexual violence within our communities because we could show, look, this isn't about we're so dysfunctional and that's why we have sexual violence. This is a colonial legacy. This is the effect of state policy of which we should hold the state accountable. And as we pursue our struggle for sovereignty, then let's make sexual violence part of that struggle because that's how colonization has been successful.
6: The exploitation of women... Is also tied to, uh, to, to sexual exploitation and sexual assault and, uh, and harassment and all kinds of other things. Now, in the, in the world of the Me Too movement and where a lot of attention has, uh, has been, you know, uh, given, rightfully so, to women in the workplace and, and the in- incredible amount of sexual, sexual exploito- exploitation and assault, uh, assault and harassment that takes place, um, in, Again, this pervasive male dominant society that is, uh, not only the United States, but all of the, uh, you know, frankly, m- much of the world, but certainly the Christian nations of Europe, uh, uh, were, were, were clearly, um, you know, and going right back to the Vatican and to, uh, and, and to the Pope, male dominance was, was a part of what's in the Bible, but it's also in, uh, in the, in the Torah and the, and the Quran. And, you know, so these, the, these religions, perpetuate some of this male dominance but what we have here in uh you know in in the united states or in you know in canada and and so many of these um european nations but certainly the, the colonies of those european nations is the remnants of that male dominance where where women are certainly persecuted at a, at a high rate and you know and it's really funny because you know listen to you uh, to the news and you'll hear the United States calling out places like Hungary or, or Saudi Arabia or you know or, or, or uh, Iran or, or wherever. and while women may be in a much more vulnerable situation in some of those places, it's, it's, it's incredible that the United States seems to ignore their own history and and the role that they've had in oppressing their own women, which is even a different issue than oppressing women of color. and that's, that's what I want to address here. Uh, you know the the um the numbers suggest that one in five women are going to experience sexual assault in their lifetime i um, uh, um even even in places like like universities that are supposed to you you think that they should be safe places one in five women are gonna experience sexual assault that's uh, that includes predominantly and and i would say um white women but if you're a woman of color that raises up by two three even four times native women specifically are, uh, they have a, a four and five, between a three and five and a four and five, uh, chance or likelihood of experiencing some level of sexual assault. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not talking on the, you know, what, what people would, you know, envision as the most violent type, but, but at some level, some level of sexual assault, you know, four and five, uh, uh, Native women are going to experience it. You know, and, and the sad part is we're, <clears throat> our women are going to experience this at any step along the way as a child um as as an adolescent you know as a as a young woman and even in domestic violence situations where native men are also a, a part of that that violence against women and 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 the violence against women includes sexual assault and i want to explain a little bit why why that exists and and why are native women a more vulnerable than, uh, than perhaps any other women of color or any other women, period, especially in, as far as the United States and Canada go. And this, and the answer is really quite simple. The, the reason is because although the, the laws that should protect all women, you know, you would think, you know, whether it's in Canada, the United States, state laws, you know, uh, native laws, whatever, you would think that those laws would be broadly applied. And while on paper they are, Physically and practically, they aren't. And and when you look at um, the the role of, of, say, state police or federal agencies or, you know, uh, whatever kind of municipal police there are, when it comes to crimes committed against Native people, they are relatively, um, I mean, ignored. They, they either aren't investigated, they certainly aren't prosecuted, and they, uh, and they, they, they aren't indicted, and they aren't prosecuted. And then here's the reason why. Native territories predominantly are in very rural areas. Um, most of the, the the native territories that mo- that come to mind for people are in places like Oklahoma or or South Dakota, or North Dakota, or New Mexico, uh, Arizona. You know, places where uh, there is a where it's a much rural, more rural environment, where the idea of law enforcement that is going to concentrate on the few cities that exist in in those states. And, and that's where they're going to concentrate their efforts, whether it's, you know, a state, local or, or federal law enforcement. When it comes to these rural areas, Wyoming, <laughs> when it comes to these, to these rural areas, they're spread pretty thin. And so the, for one thing, the response time is almost non-existent. So if a woman is in danger, if she's, if, if she is in, in some sort of peril, it's not like she's going to call 911 and have somebody there in 20 minutes or less. She'll be lucky to get somebody there in, in, in 20 days. And of course, the, the, uh, the resources that the state and federal government will put towards investigating these crimes or prosecuting these crimes, um, are almost, almost nil. I mean, it, 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 has almost been a, a standard that a crime against a native person is, is non-punishable because of the practicality of it all. Now, I know that there's been efforts to, you know, to try to, um, uh, make sure the federal government upholds its responsibility to not to just protect native people. And I, and I want to be careful with this, but to hold their people accountable because 70% of the violence against women is by white people. I um, mean, now granted, there's still 30% that, that are our own people, which, which I think we have to, we have to own and we have to take care of and we have to address. And I'm not saying that we don't have a role in addressing the violence against our, our women or, or, or our men. You know, by non-native people, um, uh, as well. I mean, that's 70%. Well, yeah, we need to step up too. But see, and this is the problem. When, when, when they added a provision in the Violence Against Women Act, uh, a few years ago, they, what they tried to do is address the fact that, that native, um, law enforcement, tribal courts, if you will, tribal police, tribal courts, um, have not been allowed to prosecute non-native people. I mean, they, they finally started letting a, a tribal court that, that could prosecute a native person from another territory, which is still, I mean, the, it's, it's still bizarre, but the, the state and federal governments have never allowed white people, non-native people to be prosecuted by tribal courts. In, in the Violence Against Women Act passed a few years ago, they put a, um, uh, a, a pilot program together where, Courts that that only the courts and and tribal police that the federal government deemed were worthy could, you know, again, on on this pilot program basis, begin to prosecute um, and convict non-native people of violence against women. Now, the the problem with that is there isn't the effort by the federal government or the state government to say to say to non-native people, look, when you go onto a native territory, you've entered their jurisdiction as uh, and to say it in a way that is distinct because th- there is no distinguishing you know that th- and that's been part of the problem you know some of this comes right down to the, the same issues about whether where native sovereignty does it exist do we have control over our own territories and our own people do we control the behavior of other people when they come onto our territory as far as the federal government is concerned no they they that's where they uh, where they play with words and they say well we don't really recognize sovereignty we recognize internal sovereignty so in other words they can do what they do amongst themselves but um but they can't do anything that's going to affect the uh, the outside even when that outside comes to us
0: reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell Congress to take legislative action on the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls crisis. Three critical bills currently making their way through Congress would help curb and correct the immoral and dismally insufficient response to the crisis impacting indigenous communities across the country. First, the Savannahs Act was first introduced in 2017 by former Senator Heidi Heitkamp. Named for a 22-year-old North Dakota woman of the Spirit Lake Nation who was abducted and brutally murdered, the bill aims to, quote, increase coordination among all levels of law enforcement, improve data collection and information sharing, and empower tribal governments with the resources they need in cases involving missing and murdered indigenous women and girls wherever they occur, unquote. Although the Savannas Act actually passed the Senate unanimously in 2018, now-retired Republican Representative Goodlat killed it in the House by eliminating the teeth meant to ensure law enforcement agencies followed the guidelines. He also ran out the clock, and the bill expired. Since Heitkamp lost re-election, Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska took up the charge and reintroduced the bill in January. Thankfully, Murkowski kept the stipulations Goodlatte tried to take out. The bill is now on its way to the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, with 16 co-sponsors, 10 Democrats, and 6 Republicans. Around the same time, the Survive Act was reintroduced by Senator John Tester of Montana, and it unanimously passed the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. The Survive Act would expand critical victim services by allocating 5% of the Crime Victims Fund, or $150 million, to Indian tribes to help survivors of sexual and domestic violence. And finally, since 2013, the Violence Against Women Act has included a statute, quote, which allowed indigenous communities to have an inherent right to exercise criminal jurisdiction over certain non-Native Americans who committed domestic or dating violence against Native American victims on tribal land, unquote. The NRA is fighting hard against reauthorization of the VAWA because they desperately want stalkers and dating partners who've been convicted of assault to own guns, obviously. You can help make these bills law by telling everyone you know about their importance and, of course, by calling and writing your members of Congress to tell them you support passage of the Savannah's Act the Survive Act, and the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act. You can learn more about this issue by visiting MontanaMMIW.com and by exploring the hashtag MMIW, which stands, of course, for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, and the hashtag MMIWG. Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com, so if forcing the U.S. government to do something that actually helps Native people is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about telling Congress to take legislative action to protect Indigenous women and girls via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
7: Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
8: On January 18th, thousands of people took part in the Indigenous People's March in Washington, D.C., with solidarity marches in other places around the U.S. and Canada. A political demonstration, including songs, dancing, and prayers, as well as speeches, the march sought to call attention to a range of issues affecting Native Americans, from environmental devastation, to violence against women, to health care, to voter suppression. For corporate media, though, it somehow all became about the intervention of some Catholic schoolboys from Kentucky, and the video of that, and the other video of that. And now media are on to their favorite thing, coverage about the coverage. An opportunity to talk about the lives and rights of perhaps the most marginalized community in the country was passed over in favor of another round of self-involved chin-stroking. Indigenous people may be more visible for news media since the anti-pipeline protests at Standing Rock, since the election of the first Indigenous women to Congress ever— But the quality of media's attention is still problematic in many ways. Our next guest's work fills some of the void they leave. Independent journalist Jenny Monet writes about Indigenous rights and injustice for a range of publications. She joins us now by phone from somewhere in southern Texas. Welcome to Counterspin, Jenny Monet.
9: (laughs) Thank you, Janine. That was a wonderful introduction into exactly what has been uh, weighing on my mind over the past few days. So thank you for drawing some attention to this issue.
8: Well, let's get into it. I want to talk about some of the stories that you've been reporting, but I guess I wanted to start with your sense of the place of Indigenous stories in the media landscape. You work with Legacy Media and are happy, I assume, to have work in those influential spaces, but navigating those spaces as someone who is committed to getting out not just Indigenous stories, but an Indigenous voice is not necessarily straightforward. There's more work than just the work of reporting itself.
9: Oftentimes, Janine, it is the hardest part of my job, the negotiation of working with decision makers in elite newsrooms and brokering for the Indigenous narrative. It's a delicate balance. These are my clients we're talking about, and I need their support. I need their advocacy of my work so that the legitimacy of the Indigenous narrative is uh, elevated in these elite spaces. And that really speaks to so much of what we're talking about here. What's happening right now with this story around Nathan Phillips and the Covington Catholic affair? You know, it's the bad journalism itself that is stripping away at this very legitimacy um, because for too long, the indigenous narrative has been steeped in otherwise what has been seen as advocacy or even unreasonable ideas. But what we saw at Standing Rock is that once people actually stop and pay attention and listen and engage these indigenous ideologies, it's not that hard to, to understand.
8: Well, and as with other underrepresented groups, it's not just a matter of media not doing stories about Indigenous people, but of not seeing Indigenous people in stories where they belong. You know, I'm I'm thinking about police brutality, for example, Native Americans face shocking rates of police violence, or as you've just reported, the government shutdown, which is having particular Mm -hmm. impacts in Indian country, right?
9: That's correct. I mean, there's an actual lawsuit that just has been waged by a group of tribes against the federal government. And I'm just not seeing that headline produced anywhere. There was a deliberate pivot for me to leave commercial newsrooms and go independent because advocating for the stories on the inside was was seemingly futile. I only had one or two editors that I could pitch to that would routinely shoot down these stories. And in large part, I felt like that was A routine undermining of my Indigenous knowledge itself. And so on the outside, where people most often view freelancing as one of the more challenging obstacles in journalism, for me, that is certainly true. But now I can knock on several doors uh, to try to sell these story ideas, but it's exhausting. And there's got to be a better way. The better way is that an elite publication, it is long overdue for them to establish a tribal affairs beat on a national level. And that just doesn't exist today.
8: Well, and when we talk about inclusion in media, sometimes there's this sense, oh, you're black, so you want more black stories, you know, but it's really about journalism. When you leave people out of the story, Mm -hmm. you get the story wrong. That's right, so for instance, writing about voter i d laws in North Dakota and not connecting that as you did to the pipeline fight that's an example of a of a missed story that really um well can you tell us a little bit about that because I don't think that was anything people heard very much about
9: absolutely, so that story was one of the three that sit in an in a growing collection, which I call the indigenous versions of my colonized pieces, so when I publish in Mainstream or established media, the process is is somewhat painful for me because there's this negotiating of having to keep certain indigenous concepts or even historical timelines in there, and oftentimes I'm less successful in taking those stands. And so the indigenous versions of my pieces, which I post on my medium page, are kind of the core concepts that I may have tried to fight for but lost in the battle of the cutting room floor, a story out of North Dakota and the voter ID law was central to that. The DAPL battle was a huge part in that narrative. And if you recall, what was happening also in January 2017 was President Trump coming into office and almost instantly advancing that pipeline after Obama had stalled it. And also in that legislative session, we also saw a wave of anti protest laws being considered in the North Dakota State Legislature at the time because of the No Dapple battle. So all of it is connected and we were looking at strains of retaliation, you know, because of this this protest that rattled the state and this was a reverberation of that. And um that got really buried in the actual piece.
8: Well, Standing Rock and the No Dapple fight showed up Some of the corporate media's kind of tired tropes, I remember a New York Times article that counterposed the company building the pipeline, calling it a major step towards the U.S. is weaning itself off of foreign oil, which, no, you Mm -hmm. know, but then on the other hand, they had tribes who, quote, viewed the project as a wounding intrusion onto lands where generations of their ancestors hunted bison, gathered water, and were born and buried long before treaties and fences stamped a different order onto the plains, close quote. Besides reducing communities' concerns to feelings in this case, I, to me that gets a bit of a whiff of... The idea that Native Americans live in or want to live in the past, you know, um, or go to a time before treaties. OK, but that's leaving out, wouldn't they maybe actually like treaties to be honored?
9: It's a real dusty, <laughs> tired way of looking at indigenous people through a lens of the past. And if we're going to talk about treaties, talk about treaties in the present day because they're living documents. Yeah, they may have been broken, but they still hold obligations by the federal government. That's why federally recognized tribes have their sovereign status with the federal government. It is because of those treaties. To be sure, Native Americans, just defined by case law after case law, are political identities, if you really get down to it. And it is because of those treaties.
8: You don't really get a sense in the press that anyone really believes that tribal nations have any sovereignty worth acknowledging, you know, that these are governments that we're talking about.
9: Right, because from a colonized view, they see that these tribes are wards of state based on the constitutional language, and they would be right that sovereignty in Indian country is somewhat quasi-sovereignty. Uh, full sovereignty would mean that these tribal nations would be completely 100% self-governed and solvent, and that's just not the case. As we see right now in the government shutdown, there are several tribes which, you know, 80% of their funding is linked to the federal government when it comes to capacity and running infrastructure and education and other social service programs. But, you know, it is because of that constitutional agreement and how these treaties were framed that allowed for this kind of internal colonization to take place. And that's, that's a mutually binding agreement. And that's the setup. That doesn't mean that these tribal nations are any less sovereign because of their relationship with the government. It it is unique and it's something that gets misconstrued and simplified because it's not written about enough.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed, which can help take the coloring of your hair to the next level. For decades, women have only had two options for coloring their hair outdated at home color or spending the time and money on a salon. But now you can get gorgeous professional hair color delivered to your door for less than $25. Self image is an important thing, so it's no surprise that many Madison Reed clients have commented how their new hair color has actually improved their lives. Madison Reed delivers gray-covering, game-changing color that you can do at home and look as if you just came from the salon. Women love the results. Gorgeous, shiny, multi dimensional, healthy looking hair. What makes Madison Reed color unique is that it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm to create over 45 gorgeous, multi tonal shades. Find your perfect shade at madison reed.com. And best of the left listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with the code LEFT. That's Madison Reed, R E E D, and use the promo code
2: LEFT. I should start off by just talking about the title. Uh, D Brown's uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, many of us uh, will know, was published in 1970. And uh, you know, it's widely celebrated. It's, it's foundational to the literature on indigenous studies and people's awareness of indigenous history. But, uh, you see that book as a double-edged sword.
7: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've got a weird relationship with the book. It was published the same year I was born. And so I grew up at, at the same pace as this. The book grew up, I suppose. And, uh, I never read it as a kid. You know when I, we would go about visiting when I was a kid around Leech Lake Reservation where I'm from in Minnesota and around at Red Lake and White Earth you'd always see the same few books in everyone's house you know you'd see God is Red or Custer died for your sins both by Vine Deloria Jr. you'd see uh the JC Penney catalog <laughs> cuz that's where all the fancy natives shopped and uh the Bible and Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. You'd see basically those four books wherever you went. And I never read it, though, uh, until I went to college. And then when I did finally read it in 1991, which was pretty much the 100th anniversary of the massacre at Wounded Knee and one year short of the 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the New World. So 91, that was a heavy year. And I read it, and I felt conflicting feelings. You know, I felt on one hand, I felt good that this man would dedicate his life to writing this book that, that explored and brought to, to people's um attention, our history and our experiences. And, and that made me feel really good. And on the other hand, in the, on the very first page of that book, despite all of his, his good intentions, D Brown says something like, this book starts in 1860 and it, and it concludes in 1890 at the Massacre at Wounded Knee, where the culture and civilization of the American Indian was destroyed, full stop. And then he goes on, on the next page, this is all on the first two pages of the book, to say, so if you happen to travel to a contemporary Indian reservation and notice the poverty and the hopelessness and the squalor, perhaps by reading this book you will understand why. And I remember thinking to myself, on one hand, I feel so good. On the other hand, I feel like he's, I feel silenced. I feel raised up and cut down in the, in the same breath. And um, that sentiment in that book that our history ends in 1890, that our lives end in 1890, that that's sort of the dividing line before which we were a great people, but we're great no more. That if we're even alive, it's not really as, we're not fully alive. That after 1890, we don't fully exist. We only exist in a state of perpetual suffering. And that idea is, is deeply entrenched and reflected in movies and books and, and, and in life. What about in our own people? Do you think that we've yeah, internalized that somewhat? For sure. I internalized that. I mean, when I was growing up at Leech Lake, I don't know how you felt, but I, you know, I was a pretty disaffected teenager who knew everything. <laughs> and no one else knew anything. And uh, I thought where I was from was a no place that where nothing happened and where good ideas went to die. And I could not wait to leave Leech Lake and get out into what I thought of as the real world. And as soon as I left, as soon as I went to university in New Jersey, and I was separated by 1,500 miles in some months, I just missed it. And that was the feeling I brought to reading Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. I thought, I'm missing home. I miss my tribe. I miss my family. I miss my cousins. I miss our ceremonies. And I miss just all the stuff about us. And I don't miss it because it sucks. And I don't miss it because of the squalor and the hopelessness and the poverty. I miss something good. And I didn't even know how to think about what that was. And I think I've spent my life trying to figure that out. I remember being a lonely Indian kid on the margins of Leech Lake Reservation, certain that there was no one else out there like me, stuck in a kind of radical subjectivity. Surely my sense of my own isolation was hardly unique. Many teens, many teen Indians feel this way. For so long, we were undone by our solitude and by the differences within our communities, which loomed as great as the differences and distances between us and the dominant culture. This began to change during the boarding school era, when Indians from different tribes were shoved together at school. That isolation was further eroded during and after World War II, when Indians served together and with a wide variety of other Americans in the armed forces. The digital Indians of the next generation are more and more quickly closing the gaps that separate us. In past eras, it might have been enough for Indians to merely survive. The biggest shift I can see in my own lifetime is a kind of collective determination to do much more than that. I feel like in a really simple way that words shape the world. Stories shape the reality that we inhabit. And by only telling certain kinds of stories, that means we can only see certain things, which means consequently we can only imagine certain futures and not others. I get asked this all the time, and if if you're native, you've been asked this. And the question is, so what is native life like? So don't don't natives believe in that you can't own the land? And I'm I'm always look at them, and I and I am just puzzled by by the reductiveness of, of that kind of question. When Europeans came here, there were over five hundred distinct tribes in North America with as many different languages and belief systems and cultures and ideas about kinship and politics and political organization. And there remain in North America, many hundreds of tribes with different cultures, ideas of kinship organization and experiences. There's no such thing as native American or indigenous life. They're just indigenous lives. There's no Indian culture, or First Nations culture, they're just First Nation cultures. And it's very hard for people to, to understand that. And that's one of the things I was really trying to, not trying to, it just felt natural to 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 note and to to swim in, was this idea of diversity. And that's one thing that tragedy doesn't communicate. And that's one of the reasons why I want to move away from this tragic mode of storytelling about Native folk. The opposite of tragedy is not hope, in my opinion. Hope is just the other side of the tragic coin, and I'm sick of being given, being paid in, and having to use that currency. The other side of tragedy, the opposite of tragedy, is complexity, context, layering, texture. That's the opposite of tragedy. Tragedy washes all of that out and turns us into some condition or a statistic. It struck me, too, that there's a lot of stories about adaptiveness. And
2: it's, it wasn't simply genocide, brutality, although you document that and, and you right. show that, that Native people has, have always been adaptive to their circumstances and right. to development as well.
7: Oh, man. Yeah. So I was on TV the other day. It was really exciting. <laughs> I hate it. I, I hate it. Um, I feel I, very uncomfortable. I saw you on CNN That's a couple the of weeks ago. You looked, you know, you looked the like mastering, mastering the moment.
2: Thank
9: you.
7: <laughs> Fake it till you make it, people. <laughs> And uh he asked me a question he said well th- the dude that I was talking to me and it was really sweet of him to do the whole thing so I want to I appreciate him for that but he was really hung up on on idea of acculturation and assimilation those things really bothered him and he said so you know you speak english and you went to princeton would you say that you're assimilated i said what <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. i said let me tell you a story the lakota used to be a woodland tribe did you know that Yeah, they lived around the Great Lakes, and they used dugout canoes, and they hunted on foot, and they lived amongst the trees. But largely because of my tribe, they migrated out onto the plains. That's what we say when we're being nice. (laughs) And over time, once the horse was unleashed in North America after the Pueblo Revolt, they adopted the horse. And then later on, when firearms became readily available, they adopted the gun. And they became the Lakota that we know today, that they didn't start that way. They ended up that way. So they proved that they were flexible and creative and brilliant and adaptive. And he said, "Uh uh-huh. I said, English is my horse and Princeton is my gun. (laughs) And I am not interested in you framing my experience as one of an assimilated experience is acculturation is cultural law something that we have to think about hundred percent absolutely it's something we have to think about but i wasn't buying it
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Moyers and Company discussing the legacy of, quote, savage anxieties, unquote. Code Switch explored the consequences of intergenerational trauma. Making Contact featured a talk from Andrea Smith connecting sexual violence to Native American genocide. Let's Talk Native explained some of the legal structures that create nearly consequence-free zones for non-native people on native lands. Counterspin discussed indigenous journalism and what the media gets wrong when native people are left out of the coverage and finally we just heard ideas from the CBC featuring David Troyer author of the heartbeat of wounded knee who's looking to upend the old narrative of tragedy and the death of native cultures to replace it with a story of a thriving constellation of cultures built on resilience and adaptation members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips covering the murdered and missing indigenous Women campaign, a fresh look at the legacy of Standing Rock, and more. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the six dollar level. Though if that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad free for only two bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit Patreon.com/slash BestOfLeft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you.
10: Hi Jay, this is Stacy from the Bay Area. I just listened to the episode about social media propagating hate and I wanted to respond to the caller Laura from Alameda, California. Right across the bay from me, hi Laura. Um... I know she said she wanted to hear from the male listeners to see what they're hearing from the men they hang around with. But, uh, well, I'm not a man, but I need to address this call anyway. I hear two separate arguments in Laura's call for why a woman shouldn't compete against Trump in a presidential campaign. Yes, Laura said she wanted specifically a Sanders for president, Warren for vice president ticket. But her arguments to support why she believes that's best were more generalized than that. Her arguments were that first a woman can't hold her own in a confrontational debate with Trump and second some men will never vote for a woman for president so we shouldn't run one as our candidate. I entirely disagree with both points and I find the arguments to be extremely problematic. On the first point, that it would be better, uh, a better ticket with Sanders on top because of the debates that, well, Laura said that Clinton has a lot of composure. She was very well composed during the Benghazi hearings and during so many attacks on her, but that she got frazzled during the Trump debate. Well, there were three debates between Clinton and Trump, and the defining characteristic, all three of those debates, was Trump yelling and interrupting and stammering and Failing to speak in complete sentences, and failing to stay on topic, and uh, contradicting himself, and overall just losing his cool. As a debater, Clinton was the opposite of that. Laura said she held it together, but that Trump's not an easy person for a woman to go against. Well, yeah, Trump is argumentative. He's a pathological liar. He has utter lack of respect for the rules of productive discourse, which makes him a difficult person for anyone to go against, and it has nothing to do with what gender that person is. So, Laura said that Warren was already targeted by Trump with the whole Pocahontas thing. Well, being called a name by Donald Trump did not, did not exactly scare Warren off. The important issue there was with the Native American nations and how tribal membership is determined not, not any small-minded thing that Donald Trump spit out. Warren has been consistent in her criticisms of Trump and her her condemnations of both his actions inside the White House and his dodgy economic activities outside the White House. But Laura thinks it's a better strategy to have Sanders on top of the ticket debating Trump and Warren debating Pence, and that Sanders would be better able to take on Trump for his lack of character. Well, yeah, Sanders is really good at calling out bullshit certainly. Warren has a strong track record and a long track record of coming hard against the characterless fat cats on Wall Street. And Warren is a well-reasoned and well-spoken, well-thought senator who resists public Republicans' attempts to shut her down. And she does that really well. She was a law professor from Harvard, not an institution exactly known for its gender egalitarian record. I don't... I don't think there's a need to protect Warren from difficult debate. Well, so now to get on to the second point, that some men will never vote for a woman for president, so we shouldn't have a female candidate. Laura pointed out that ours is a dominator society, she called it. Well, that's true. But it doesn't follow that women should just keep quiet and go back to the back of the bus, to borrow from the civil rights movement, and and let the men go at it with their, their domination off. She thinks that Some of the people who voted for Trump are men who just can't stand seeing a woman come out on top. Again, I'm sure that's true, but we don't need to be adjusting our government to cater to that backward sentiment, and and that's held by such a small segment of the U.S. population when it comes down to it. Seriously, what would this country look like now if the civil rights movement had never happened? If black people had just said, well, there are some angry vocal white people who just don't want us to to live fully, fully realized lives. So we're best off just keeping quiet and sitting here in the back of the bus and hoping that some other white savior is going to come and speak out on our behalf and make it all happen for us. No, that's not what happened. And proposing that we should have a man on the top because some men hate women is no different. It's regressive, and it's absolutely the wrong way to try to move forward. Laura said that, well, these men wanted to see Trump, Trump Hillary. Well, there's no doubt that there's a certain amount of disdain in this country for Hillary Clinton specifically. But that doesn't mean that the same proportion of the population that wouldn't like to see Hillary Clinton be president is the same proportion that would refuse to vote for a woman in general for president. Yes, there are misogynists who will resist any suggestion that there should be a woman in the White House. But again, that bigoted fringe is not what we need to bow to and not who we should yield our country's prospects for real progress to. We don't need to let some small group of hateful men throwing a hissy fit determine for us who we want as our presidential candidate. This argument is a great example of internalized sexism. Now, I'm not calling Laura a sexist. I'm saying that internalized sexism is insidious. Internalized sexism sounds a lot like Really, it's the men who say the important things that ultimately matter the most to a discussion, whether it's a presidential campaign uh, debate or a dialogue over a podcast call line. What men have to say is what decides the issue. Now, I'm confident, absolutely confident, that Laura will say that that's not at all what she meant. But that's the thing about internalized sexism. It's internalized, and it's only peripheral to conscious intention. And it's important for us to be vigilant about our own justifications for something that if, if we step back and look at it unvarnished, looks a lot like something we'd really not agree with. So as for how I'm approaching the 2020 race, there are an awful lot of candidates in the mix, and I'm listening as closely as I can to what each one is saying and doing and, and has done, and for me it seems too early yet to see whose policies stack up the best. And yes, I'm, I'm one who cares for policy first. I would never vote for, say, Herman Cain <laughs> or Sarah Palin when there's a good policy wonk around like Bernie Sanders. So I'm trying my best to educate myself about people who have declared. And frankly, by the time the debates get going, I'm sure we'll start getting a better idea of where we are going. And in the meantime, we can always contact these people's campaigns and assert what it is we want from our next president, they're in campaign mode. They've got good reason and motivation to respond to people right now and clarify for us what it is that makes them the best candidate. So now's a good time to put the pressure on and ask questions of these candidates and let them respond. So that's my two cents and um, thanks for that. Uh, Thank you for everything you do and um, stay awesome. Cheers.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, to finish today, I want to uh, to raise up some voices of some Native people talking about current events. Uh, It just so happens that there's a a terrible event that happened uh, during the production of this show. The news broke about the the fire breaking out at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, France. It's very sad. Pretty much everyone in the world has heard about it. Uh, I mean, pretty much everyone in the world had had at least heard of Notre Dame. And now grief is pouring out from all corners of the world, standing in solidarity with uh, Parisians for their beloved landmark. And so, you know, I I caught wind and and decided to dig a little deeper that some native people have some thoughts on this. And you're probably not going to hear this sort of perspective in most uh, other coverage. I found it pretty simple. I just went on Twitter and did a quick search for hashtag indigenous, hashtag Notre Dame. And here's just a sampling of what I found. Uh, First one, I am moved to appreciate, as Notre Dame burns and many express profound loss, that this profound loss is the everyday lived experience of indigenous, enslaved, and colonized peoples the world over grieving lost-slash-violated lands, sacred places, language, practices, and culture. Next one, It was excruciating to watch Notre Dame burn. My heart goes out to those who are affected by that loss. Please remember your pain as you lost this gem when indigenous people object to land grabs, contamination, and so on. When our sacred spaces are damaged, the pain is the same. Third one, Y'all sad about Notre Dame like you aren't building pipelines through indigenous equivalents. The whole world mourns for your buildings as we mourn our ancestral lands in silence, and that is your privilege. Fourth one, The grief caused by the blaze in a 650-year-old sacred building should give some idea of the grief around the threatened destruction of the 800-year-old sacred trees into jabrong country. That's an aboriginal area in uh, Australia. And then the last one, The concern and dismay is being felt by many around the world. Now imagine that the damage to this historic and religious site was caused by a pipeline running through it, by fracking, or due to development. This shock and dismay is the type of feeling indigenous people feel when our lands and sacred sites are damaged and threatened." So I think it would have been good on any given day, but particularly fitting uh, for today's show to share that perspective that uh, I I think many of us would never have heard otherwise. Keep the comments coming in as always. 202-999-3991 is the voicemail line. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at Patreon.com/slash BestOfTheLeft, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode.